In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is my contention that of all the characters in the storyline of Harry Potter, there is none more interesting than Severus Snape. And that is because there is this bizarre disparity between the face that he sports and not really sure what is his most animating, controlling principle that guides everything that he does. And the reason he's the most interesting is for the most of the storyline, we are led to think on and off that he is an adversary until we discover that he is something else. And yet still, there is a scowl upon his face, a scorn in his tone, a sternness to everything that he says and he does. And that's the vibe he just gives off and you really can't avoid it. Why am I bringing him up? We're in the Gospel of Mark. And we're always asking the question as we read Mark's account is what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because I think it's a rather misunderstood command. And in the passage that we're going to listen to today, it goes really fast. But whatever we hear Jesus say, at first glance, on a first hearing, it feels kind of short and curt and stony, kind of like Snape. And you're going to come off from it wondering, wow, um, what's up with Jesus? Do we catch him at a bad moment? And before we get too cute about drawing analogies between fiction and this moment in Jesus' life, there are plenty of people who will read this passage and think that Jesus is suffering from a bout of racism and misogyny. You will find those voices, and they make a credible case. And you will have to hear that and go, what's going on? But in the same way, you read Harry Potter, and you have to sort of slow down the tape and take in a great much much more detail about the context in order to understand what's at work and what's motivating. You have to do the same thing with this short moment in Mark chapter 7. We're going to have to slow the tape down. We're going to have to consider details that get lost in the shuffle. And I think what we're going to do in the process is come to grips with something that you heard in that opening quote from Thomas Merton. That Jesus is out to reckon with us this question about those who do not belong, but who feel rejected. What does it mean to belong? Who belongs? Who has a seat at his table? Who has access to his world and a place in his heart? That's a question that we have to grapple with. And I think this passage, as troubling as it will seem, and as much work it will take us to sift through its details, that's a question that is in everybody's mind, whether you are here or not, or would never dream of darkening the doorstep of this place. So let's listen. Let's slow the tape down. Let's consider who belongs. We're in Mark chapter 7. We'll start in verse 24. I wonder if you might stand and hear this read. Our central text for today is Mark seven twenty-four through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician from birth, 
and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. So what just happened? Uh, Jesus answers a woman who comes to with us a desperate need, and did he really say at first, sorry, no can do? Did, did he just call her a dog? What's going on? How do we grapple with Jesus? How do we hear Jesus at any other time, given what we've just heard in this brief exchange with this woman? Friends, um, every detail matters in this one. And so we're going to have to take this moment almost at quarter speed, because every detail matters. And the first detail that we have to grapple with is, now where are we? Where, where is this? Jesus um, is in a region of Tyre and Sidon. It is uh, a coastal city on the Mediterranean, sort of northwest of Jerusalem. Um, it is a place that is not in Israel. It is a place populated by the Phoenicians, you know, those Phoenicians that you studied in history. And apparently this region there on the Mediterranean is not unlike going to the Sequoia Natural Forest in California. Because if you know your Old Testament, that you know there's a point at which King Solomon, who is out to build the temple, goes to Tyre and Sidon and hatches a plan, enters into a contract with the king of Tyre for some of his trees. Because he had the most towering trees, the most formidable and robust trees. Hauls them back to Jerusalem, builds the temple. That's what Tyre and Sidon is. It's a place outside of Israel. And Jesus is going there. Jesus is on a getaway outside of Israel territory. This Jewish Messiah who has already spoken of being anointed by God and whom God has said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, who has already spoken about forgiving and has also demonstrated a capacity to deliver, this dude is whooped. He's got to take a rest. And like last week when we were in Mark chapter 6, where he invites the disciples to come away with him to a desolate place, he knows They know this work for the kingdom will tire you out, and he needs it. And so he goes to this little seaside Airbnb and sequesters himself with his friends, and they chill. And while he's there, you know what happens. Need knows no season. That's like we always say around these times. Need knows no season. Somehow, a local woman catches wind that he's around. I have no idea how. This local woman who's from that area hears that this Jewish Messiah is holed up in some house. She goes to him and she throws herself at his feet and says, you got to help. My daughter is captured. Captured by something dark. Captured by something destructive. Captured by something that is deep within. 
And right then, we all have to pause and remember where we are. We're in a place where few Jews were and mostly Gentiles were. And so the first thing that you have to notice is location, location, location. He's not in Israel. And he's chosen to go into a place where there are primarily not Jews. And this woman shows up at his door and throws herself at his feet. And here's where the second detail matters. Not only where we are, but who it is that's found him. Who's talking to him? Who's the profile? We don't know her name at all. But we do know something important that Mark feels important enough to mention in this brief account. We notice and learn her ethnicity and where she's from. It says she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's not of the house of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She's from outside that. And you and I would say to ourselves, yes, and so, why does that matter? Let me, let me offer, offer a rather rhetorical personal question. Tell me, how was Thanksgiving? Was it smooth? Was it entirely placid? Did everyone behave? Were there any su- was there any subject matter that might have made somebody turn their pursed lips and might be tempted to pick up a drumstick and hurl it as a projectile? Were there some people that stayed away because they knew where the conversation might go? Maybe it went great. Maybe it got ugly. Friends, whatever disruption or unpleasantness that you might have felt at Thanksgiving, imagine that sort of turmoil writ large between Jews and Gentiles. Remember, it's, it's the Gentile Egyptians who enslave the Jews. It's the Jews who then displace the Canaanites from the Promised Land. It's the Gentile Assyrians and Babylonians who exile Israel under their respective imperialistic nations, annex their territory. Friends, there is no love lost between Gentiles and Jews. And to mention her ethnicity has a part to play in our thinking about this moment. Not only is she a Gentile, Mark sees fit to mention that she's a Syrophoenician. Ah, yes, the Syrophoenicians, right. I remember that from history. No, I don't. Who's of the house and lineage of Syrophoenicia? You might have heard from the Old Testament a queen named Jezebel. She's a Syrophoenician. She turns King Ahab against the Lord. She goes after Elijah. Syrophoenicians, boo! This person already has three strikes against her. Woman, Gentile, Syrophoenician. Here she is. And it's here where we have to figure out what's going on. Because all of this is a setup. Those details, where we are, who's talking, is to prepare us for what sounds like Jesus channeling Snape for just a minute. She begs him, as a Gentile, In a Gentile region, will you help my daughter? And what is Jesus' words? Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. (laughs) Even with the extra context, that doesn't take the sting out of those words. So let's take that little verse and pick it apart a little bit here first. 
Let the children be fed first. Who's he referring to there? He's referring to the house of Israel. Those who are of his children. Where does Jesus begin his ministry? Smack dab in the middle of Israel. Where does he traffic most of the time during his ministry? In Galilee and Capernaum, places where Jews primarily inhabit. What does, what does Jesus say in John chapter 4? Salvation is from the Jews. Who does he pick? Twelve Jewish disciples. Let the children be fed first. There's his priority. All right, great. So far, not so problematic. But when he gets to the, for it is not good to give to the dogs what is meant for the children. Oh, dogs? What's going on there? It's not right to give it. Okay, kids, um, imagine for a moment your mom or dad make this awesome meal. And they serve it all up, and they say, go wash your hands, and everybody sits down, and you sit down, and you look at it, and you go, oh no, this is not my favorite. In fact, I don't, I don't like this one at all. And in that moment, what, what are you tempted to do? To take that moment, take that work that they put so much effort into it, and if you have a, an animal, to slip it onto the table. And, and, and my dog is, is fine with, be, with being called a dog, because she is one. I, I am a dog, that's fine. Why, though, would you refer Jesus to this one as a dog? And that it's not right to give what is for the children to the dogs. Is Jesus saying that he is kind of low on power to offer deliverance to this woman? Does he, is he, I mean, this will get me in trouble. Is he kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons character who loses some of his spells and he's got to recharge? Is that what's going on here? Is, is Jesus saying that what is for the Jews is for no one else? Or even worse, is, is he almost suggesting that she not being a Jew is subhuman? Maybe there's more to his words than that because um, we know full well that Jesus is never running low on power. There's never a point in which he says, you know what, I'm just not going to do this. So maybe there's something more to his words, but it still doesn't change the fact that he used the word dogs. Now, if you use the word dogs, you see the word dogs across the Old Testament, dogs do not come off well. Um, they are never, oh, look at a sweet little puppy, right? It's, it's, they're like the feral animals that go and eat on the, you know, the, the dead buzzards. The, the feral animals, the wild animals, that's how dogs are. Now, the, do, the, use, the word that Jesus picks here for dogs is more like the house pets, the one that kind of hang out in the house. What are we to make of that reality? Here's where you got to rewind the tape a little bit. Remember a couple weeks ago when, when Brad came up here and he preached from Mark chapter 5? And, and what happens in that chapter? He, he finds a man who lives among the tombs because he is also captured by something dark. And he cuts himself and he hurts himself and he hates himself and he is, he is oppressed by that which is deliverance. And it's there known as the, the garrison demoniac. That's chapter 5. Here's chapter 7. What's true about that dude that lived among the tombs? He's a Gentile also. He's not a Jew. He's not of the house of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. But when Jesus shows up there and sees this man among the tombs, he doesn't say to the guy, you know what, I'm going to have to pass on you. You're going to have to take care of your own self. My bread is for the people who are of the house in Israel. He doesn't say that. He delivers him. So what's going on? If Jesus is never really out of power in order to do his work, 
and if Jesus will treat other Gentiles in a drastically different way and not hesitate a bit to deliver them of their greatest need, then what is he doing here by saying to this Gentile woman, do we really think he's saying, sorry, just can't help? Beloved, I'm going to go out on a limb here based upon my own study of this passage. You know what Jesus is doing? He's out to provoke her, but not for the reasons that you might think. He's not out to get her goat. He's not out to demean her. Because you'll notice, how does she respond after Jesus says this? She says, yes, Lord. She agrees with him. She calls him Lord. She's not of Israel, but she still thinks of him as having power. Well, I mean, why else would she seek him out? Yes, Lord. And, and what does she not do? She does not say, I never have been talked to that way. How dare you? I'll go find my deliverance from somebody else. She doesn't storm off. She says, yes, Lord. And then in so many words, she says, you know what? Canines are cool with the crumbs. And what happens? Jesus says, oh, for that, your daughter's fine. She's healed. You can go. You're good. Permission. Prayer answered. Oh my gosh, what just happened? Will the real Jesus please stand up? Jesus is this dude that seems like he's demeaning her and all of a sudden he's the miracle worker. Did she do some sort of Jedi mind trick? These are not the dogs you were looking for. What happened? Kenneth Bailey wrote a wonderful book entitled Seeing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, which is what we all have to do. You and I bring our Western biases to any reading of any particular text of Scripture, and we immediately start to make certain assumptions about what we're to find here. And you, you have to realize that whenever um, the New Testament is written, it is written into a community that has no idea what you and I mean by individualism. You are who you're part of. The community, in so many ways, defines so much of who you are and how you see the world. And in this moment, the question is, what is Jesus up to? Why did he do what he did? Do we really think he didn't care about her? Do we ever see him being cheap with his kindness? Do we ever see him resistant to helping someone in need? No! So, why did he do what he do? For the sake of the woman? For the sake of her daughter? Yes. But you know who else he's doing this moment for with help from Kenneth Bailey who helps us to read this passage through Middle Eastern eyes? He's doing it for somebody else. Somebody that's off camera. Somebody we don't hear mentioned in this particular part of the passage but who is inevitably there. You know who's there but we don't see it? His disciples. You read the version of this in Matthew 15, and fortunately Matthew says, oh Mark, you left so much out. And he mentions the disciples, and he mentions a more elaborate exchange between Jesus and this woman. The disciples are there. Why would Jesus go through this little rhetorical thing with her? Because the disciples are there, and you know who prejudiced? You know who's, who's tempted to prejudice in that moment? The disciples are. They bring to themselves with to the table, a, a prejudice, a bias against women. They are in a culture in which women's testimony would not be admissible in court. 
These disciples would bring that bias to the table. You know what other bias they would bring to the table? They would bring their bias against Gentiles. Now look, you're a Jew. You got plenty of things on the Gentiles' rap sheet that would make you think, I ain't going to Tyre. I will vacation here, not there. But they forget. God started with one particular family, but he always had his eye on on the Gentiles. You read the book of Ruth. There's a wonderful painting here from Mark Chagall, or rather, uh, about Jonah. Jonah goes to the Ninevites to confirm to Israel that God has an interest in the Ninevites, the Ninevites who oppressed Israel. Ruth, she's a Moabite. She becomes the hero of the story. And Ruth ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. So look, Israel, yes, they know that God has had an interest in them from the beginning, but he has also had his eye on the Gentiles from the beginning too. And that's why we read Luke chapter 2 this morning. Because when Simeon quotes Isaiah, who is God coming in the flesh here? He is a light of revelation for whom? For the Gentiles. What did Jesus do here? He provoked this woman to get into a little rhetorical battle of wits for her sake, for her daughter's sake, but also for the disciples' sake. To play these little word games that they would have been familiar with in order to help them know who can belong, whoever might see the Lord coming to work with power in the name of Jesus. That's who belongs. That's the story we've got here. Now, look, you think it's hard to understand the meaning of the text. I will not lie. It was even harder for me to ask this self-question. Why should you care? This is all very interesting. You know, these, this rhetorical back and forth and the, and the context about location, location, and location and, and the exact profile of this person. That's all very interesting. Yes, and so what? Here's where i got to push us and think in two places that I think this passage meets us where you and I are particularly weak. And that first domain comes down to this. How you and I tend to think of those with whom we have deep difference. Who we might be tempted to think could never belong to him. I want to show you a clip from a film. And it's a fictionalization of a real story. And I think I've even used it with you a couple years ago. And so it's really writ large, the, the idea that I want to bring home to you in a very personal way. But it, it's a, a retelling of something that happened in multiple places during World War I on Christmas Eve 1914. In this scene, the French, the Scotch, the Germans are sharing a little scotch, but who have come to a truce, at least for Christmas Eve. And in this moment, you will see them discover, or rather be reminded of something that they are all in common in the midst of fighting a war amongst each other. In, in many places there on the Western Front in 1914, that sort of thing happened. People that had been shooting at each other and trying to beat one another, laid it all down, 
and came out of their trenches and remembered something. Remembered what they shared. And all in the context of remembering one whose love is real. Um, beloved, you know, you could say that a text like this does speak to the questions of racism. And if there is racism anywhere in our hearts, we must repent. I know I say the most complicated thing sometimes, right? But I think this passage also speaks to the ways in which you and I are perhaps tempted. Everybody has opinions about everything. Shocker, right? And therefore, on, on every issue, there's an index, a spectrum. And, and you and I all occupy some place on that spectrum. And if you operate here, then there's very likely somebody on a very different place on a, on, on a spectrum, depending on the question that you're raising. And you and I, we clump, we agree, we find people that are like us, we dig that, we feel strength through that, and we begin to think that that person that occupies the other side of the spectrum, pff, huh, and you are tempted to think that they could never have the favor of the Lord. And that's how the Jews were thinking of the Gentiles. And I think Jesus is pushing us all to consider the possibility that even on a, an ideological spectrum, if you even begin to think that they could not belong to God, you've missed the point of the passage. And if I might press us just a little bit further, I think maybe even if you don't have any animosity or even disgruntlement for, for someone else that you share deep difference with, I think you and I are more tempted to do indifference. We just like to stay in our trench. And we think God really doesn't have his eye on anybody else in any other trench. And I think this passage is saying, Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not true either. During our prayer time this morning, we mentioned 2 Corinthians 5. We regard no one according to the flesh no longer because we once regarded Jesus Christ according to the flesh, but him we regard him no longer. Who are we now? We're ambassadors. Friends, ambassadors never stay in the embassy. But I am tempted to stay in my embassy and to think, maybe I don't have animosity for somebody that I don't think would have an interest in the Lord, but I don't know that I really care. And Jesus is pressing us, pressing his disciples to remember that God has his eye on the Gentiles and on the Jews. Who may belong? Anybody that sees the blessing of the Lord in Jesus. That's it. That's the prerequisite. This passage pushes us to think about how we think about those with whom we have deep difference. And so he's pressing us to see like Jesus. But the one other place I think it presses us is to pray like this woman. She shows up, throws herself at his feet, and at first it sounds like Jesus is saying, would you get lost? And she prays with, here's your SAT word for the day. She prays with a little moxie. I got nowhere else to go. You're the only one that can help. And whatever you meant there by that little, you know, children, dogs thing, I don't care. I'll take whatever you got. That's moxie. That's ferocity. That's perseverance. And you know what? Jesus, who else, for all we know, Jesus has got her in the back of his head when he talks about the parables about prayer, when he casts God almost as a, as a, a, a half-deaf grandfather that, what? I can't hear you. I don't care. Go away. 
Jesus is teaching us to be persevering in prayer. He's teaching us to not take no for an answer. Because there might be something more to prayer. You and I, especially myself, I, I can think of prayer as this transaction. Like, I'm going to customer service. I have a complaint. I raise a complaint. I'm waiting for customer service to deliver on that complaint. If customer service doesn't do it, I will find somebody else. Can I talk to your manager? I think we ought to pray like her. And to have the kind of heart that really doesn't like to take no for an answer and persist in it. C.S. Lewis famously writes in the midst of his prayers, he says this, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. Friends, what if prayer is more than a transaction? What if it is out to cultivate something in me that looks like faith, that looks like following He pushes us in how we see others with whom we have deep difference. He pushes us when it comes to cultivating a heart that prays with a little moxie like this woman does. And how do you and I recover that interest? Because I, even as I say those things, you're like, "Ah, I can't, I don't, mm, it's not in me. Where do we, where do we get the power for that? Where do we get the fuel for that? How do we recover the plot that we've lost? Friends, what did he do with that woman there in that brief exchange? He provoked her. Why? To get her to push back. Not to send her away, but to draw her in. Why? So that she would best him. She gets into this little rhetorical battle of wits with her so that she would best him for the sake of his disciples to get the point. Friends, we shouldn't be shocked by this little odd, brief exchange with her, because that's in miniature what Jesus does at the cross. In that moment with her, he lets himself be bested that he might bless her. Oh, guess what? That's what the cross is. He lets himself be bested, bruised, bloodied, tortured, and bested, so that he might bless. That's the gospel. And somehow, if we start to get that, it will humble us to see each other so that we do not sum one another up according to the things that we can see and the things that are on their resume. And when we see him as that is, then we might actually fight with him like Jacob when he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Somehow in all that, we see the gospel. Snape, for the love of Harry's mother, lets himself die to protect Harry and everything that's good Jesus, for the love of his Father, does everything he can and lets himself die to bring blessing to all those who might say unto him, Yes, Lord, I'll take whatever crumbs you got. That's Christmas. That's where we gather. That's why we sing. And that's why even if there are tears on your eyes this morning, you are no fool to gather in his name and pray to him and sing to him and ask him to help. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Let's pray. Father, whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is pure, help us to believe that such things exist and that they consist in all things in you, 
from whom all are things and for whom are all things. Father, whatever burden we wear this day and whatever burden we will still have to carry even as we leave this place, I would pray, Father, still for that peace that though it is not a change in my circumstances, it is a change in the way I might see them. Whatever that might be, I beg your mercy. And I ask that you would help us to see one another as you see us and to see ourselves as ambassadors who have been entrusted with a hope that cannot fade and that you would teach us to sing the song of our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. It's part of our pattern to encourage us all to greet somebody with a few words that we don't know at the time of our closing to remind ourselves that we have a message of grace and mercy for all and even those we do not know. So go with this benediction. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. May the peace of the Lord be with you. Go in peace.